As we begin the message today, I want you to think about the question with me, will 5280 Church restore hope in our city? You know, and I, I want to push back against some of our understandings of church, um, some of our responses to culture today. I, I'm probably going to get in everybody's business at one point today um, as this message has gotten into mine. And, it's, and, and hopefully I can keep a spirit of humility and Christ-likeness in it. But this is something I'm very passionate about. You see, when you, you look at our world, I don't know what you see when you look at the headlines. But I see a culture that is angry and outraged. And what they're outraged about really isn't the real reason that they're outraged. Our world is screaming for the hope that is in Jesus Christ. And the state of the Christian church collectively, globally, which includes our little family, but we're part of a much bigger family, has forgotten that message. We don't know what it looks like. If I were to go through this room and ask you what, what the message of Jesus is, we would get varying response. If I were to ask you how that message impacts your daily life, there would be a lot of question marks, as there are in mine. But our church is standing in the midst of a broken culture, a very dysfunctional family called God's children, and we are facing the same temptations that the church collectively, globally faces. And we're tempted with three sins to commit against Jesus and the culture. And the first one is this, isolation. This is our first response for a lot of churches. It's isolation. What do we do in the midst of this tension? We rally the troops. We circle the wagons. We hide in the room. We homeschool our kids. We don't watch TV. We unplug the internet. Well, wait a minute. That's a little extreme, right? We're not going to unplug the internet. <laughs> but we do. We cut ourselves off. It's isolation. And it's the philosophy that if we just simply withdraw from our neighbors and those around us that don't know him, we withdraw from culture that we're going to be okay. We actually fortify ourselves in these little communities, insular communities called the church. And thinking that because we're insulated and we have such a great thing going that people on the outside that can't even see in, that have no connection to the way in because we're not connected with any of them, are suddenly going to fall in love with the church and want to be in the room with us. Isolation isn't going to lead us anywhere, is it? And what we do is we kind of reduce the idea to church being something that if we sit in a room, we learn enough, and we, we keep the big sins off our list, and we have nailed it, what Jesus has for us. But that's just a fraction of the story. See, when we look at this, Matthew chapter 16, verse 15, and following, we have to ask ourselves, is the idea of isolating ourselves from culture really what Jesus had in mind? So Jesus is doing ministry, and he asks the disciples, he says, hey, who do people say I am? As you're ministering to me, who do people say I am? That's a very good question for us, right? When we're out doing things in the community, we have to ask him, what do they think about Jesus? Who do they say Jesus is because of what we're doing? How we're living. And then he comes back and he says, in order for them to get it, he asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? Now, that's a better question. 
That's what he says in verse 15. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the promised Messiah, the son of the living God. You're Jesus. You're the promised one. You're God in the flesh who has come to redeem man out of his sin. The whole Old Testament narrative. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, most of us have heard this verse, and then we go to the idea that Peter or our pastors are the guys that churches are built on. Any of you had that thought? The church was built on Peter. He's the rock, right? That's what his name means. It means rock. Let's dig a little closer into that passage. You back back up. Who do people say that I am? Simon Peter said this. You are Christ, the son of the living God. So, so there's this profession of faith that you are the Messiah. You are the Savior. You are God of the universe. You are the one whose image that I've been created in. You are the only one that can restore that broken image in me. That's the understanding of the Old Testament. And he says, you're that guy. You're God in the flesh. And Jesus says, dude, you're blessed. You are overwhelmed by this because God has revealed this to you. God has revealed himself to you. And he says, I tell you, Peter, which does mean rock, on this rock I will build my church. So rock is used twice. See, the word Peter means petros in the Greek, which means piece of rock, a chip off of a rock. And then when you see the word rock, it actually means a large founding boulder. So what are we talking about here? Upon this little chip off of the large founding boulder is what God is going to build his church on? No, it's the profession of faith. The rock, the God of our salvation. Not the person that proclaims it. And so the rock of our salvation is this profession of faith, the understanding of who God is and what he wants to do in a person's life. And we're just a piece of that, a reflection of that. Here's another reason why that is. Our understanding of church, think about this for a second. If, if the epitome and, and, and ultimate goal of the church is to get people sitting in a room listening to sermons, to create an isolated subculture, And we have to ask ourselves, is that really what Jesus died to give the world? And this right here is one of the only times that Jesus used the word church. And the word church is ecclesia. We put the word church in there. Okay, so there's not really a direct Greek to English translation. We took an English word, tried to make it fit into a Greek language. The word ecclesia means gathering, calling out. It could be used for people to have a town hall meeting for politics, just the same as it could be a calling together for a common purpose of worshiping God. What defined the gathering is the object of their worship. And in this case, church. God is assembling a community of people that worships him and lets that worship be seen so that other people can worship him. And, and where we get this is that this is not an isolated group of people that live in isolation. Look, look at what it says. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now think about this. Gates. Most of us understand this to mean that hell cannot come against the church and disrupt the church. How many gates have you seen attack anybody? 
Gates serve a purpose. Keep people in, keep people out. If the church is an isolated group of people that lives in, in, in a subculture separated from the community and they have gates that protect them from the big bad culture and this is our understanding of this passage according to this verse we are in Hades right now we are in the hell of the dead they're the gates of hell doesn't make sense does it If the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church, then the church has to be on mission. It's moving somewhere, and there's not going to be an obstacle, even all that hell can throw at us to prevent us and slow us down and keep us out. Not a thing is going to keep God from doing what he wants to do. See, God did not intend for an isolated group of people. The rock of salvation is to proclaim the gospel, to live in right relationship with him and let that relationship show to other people and invite other people to follow Jesus as you're following Jesus, to fill the world with that missionary endeavor and there's not a thing that can stop you or his community of faith called the church. Sin number one is isolation. Sin number two is domination. This is our second response. We just make everything illegal that we don't like morally. Those things are important for civilized society to have rules and laws. I'm not arguing that. And I think if we're going to have rules and laws, they ought to reflect God's character and heart. I don't know that our legal system necessarily reflects God's heart because redemption is not part of our legal system. The rules reflect the character. But it's a little absurd to think that that brings the gospel because the gospel is grace, right? You're guilty, I'll take your place. You're not going to find a defense attorney or prosecutor willing to do your time. But yet, we choose domination. This is where we rule over our neighbor. We suppress our neighbor. We squelch our neighbor in order to take the culture back so that we can live comfortable. You want to know why American Christians are freaking out? Because they know that they've enjoyed a freedom for far too long that the rest of Christianity hasn't really enjoyed in its entire history. Christianity has always been that ugly stepchild in culture that was disenfranchised, the minority. To believe in Jesus meant you took the stigma of being a Christian on yourself. And that freaks us out. Because immediately it sifts us. Listen, martyrdom is a real deal around the world. People are not dying at the end of a sword or a gun to save their precious worship service. 
But yet we will split, multiply, church plant, do whatever we're going to do to create a church after our own image. And then we want to impose that same thing culturally upon other people who don't even share the same value in thinking that they will see the light and want to come into our community. All you've done is ticked the darkness off. You just said, I am your enemy. Domination is a horrible approach. Destructive approach. And looks nothing like what Jesus called us to do. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Jesus' last words. Summarizing his entire life and ministry. Passing it on to, to his people. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's one command in this verse. What is it? Everybody wanted to say go, right? The command is to make disciples. Now, our idea of discipleship is getting people in a room and studying the Bible together. That's how you make a disciple. The problem is, you're already starting with a disciple. You're not making anything. You're informing a disciple. How can I say that? Think about Jesus' ministry. How did Jesus share the gospel? How did he invite people into relationship with him? What was the language that he used? See, in contemporary Christian circles, we've separated evangelism and discipleship. Evangelism is, I can have salvation. Discipleship is, well, that's that really weird stuff that you do when you want to get serious about your salvation. But Jesus never separated those two ideas. Making a disciple starts with inviting somebody to be a disciple. And Jesus used the phrase, follow me. Come closely to me. Exchange your identity in this world for the identity in me, which lines up with the gospel, the full narrative of the Bible, right? Jesus came to restore the broken image of God that resides within each and every one of us. He wanted to heal that. He wanted to redeem that. He wanted to draw that back out of humanity, He wanted to give them the ability through his spirit to push back against their brokenness and their own darkness and to actually have a choice to walk in freedom and light. And he offers that to anybody that's humble enough to say, I can't do it. I need you, Jesus. That's faith. And God says in that moment, dude, I'm in. I'm in you. I'm all over this. I'm going to help you. And if you just keep that attitude, Jesus, I can't do this. I want to do this. I'll restore that broken image. This is the life of a disciple, to know, love, and follow Jesus so that other people can know, love, and follow Jesus. Everything else is a descriptor. The one commandment is to make disciples. We do this by going. This, this is a passive voice as you go. In other words, as you go to lunch, as you go home, as you live in your neighborhood, in your house, as you go to work, wherever you interact, wherever you are, you are a disciple that can help other people see what it means to follow Jesus, to know, love, and follow Jesus. 
hardly a domineering command. Passively living out your faith, pointing people to Jesus, asking them to follow you in as you follow him. That's a disciple. Do this with me. Next thing is baptizing them. So as I go, I'm inviting people into this identity. Baptism is a a symbol of identity saying, I'm no longer me. I am me with God in me. The old me has died under water. I come up a new creation in Christ, in Christ. Which matches what Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Have no other relationships more important to me. You know, you must hate your mother and father, wife and children, yes, even your own life, or you cannot be my disciple. What is he saying? He's like, you got to have a, it's, it's an exaggeration of a point saying, you can have no greater love than your love for me and let that love shape every relationship that you have. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. It's not saying literally hate people around you. But this is what Jesus calls us to, to completely identify with him. And so we're inviting people to identify with him as we are trying to identify with him. And we, we do this by teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. This is the one we love. This is where that domineering comes in. We skip all that other crap and we get into the, right into the meat of it. You're a sinner. You messed up. You got to get it right. And I want to make sure that we have a law that tells you that you're wrong every day of your life. But don't ask me to lift a finger to help you find restoration. It's a burden that people have to carry that they can find no release from. And we call that the gospel. Jesus came and laid that burden down. And he says, I will release you from it and I will empower you through it and I will carry you to the other side. That's the gospel. It doesn't reflect the church, does it? We want to check the vote and say we have done our moral duty. We've not made a disciple. The word teaching to observe means instruct to follow, to instruct, to sit across the table from. Obey is a hard word for us, but it just simply means I'm actually going to live this out. Instruct people so they can live this out. Is that really the heartbeat of the Western church? I'm going to communicate to you as an intelligent being that has incredible infinite worth that you don't even know you have because you don't know God's worth. And I'm going to be patient with you. I'm going to sit across the table from you. And I'm going to open up this word to you. And I'm going to admit my brokenness and my failure. And I'm not asking you to be me. I'm asking you to look to him. And as I'm trying to pursue him, I want you to pursue him. I want you to see that there is no greater pursuit in this life, that it is worth laying down your every desire, your every passion, your every dream to receive everything that he wants to do in your life. Does that sound like the appeal of the Western church? Notice the last one, in beholding Behold, I am with you always, relying on his presence and authority every day of our lives. This is what the world needs. You don't get that in here. 
I can fuel it. I can instruct in it. But ultimately, we have to lock arms together and live this mess out. The third sin is assimilation. Blending in and adopting the world's perspective so much that we become indistinct from it. We don't look any different. Our messages are the same. See, the challenge with that is that it goes against Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Listen, God desires justice. There's a day coming where God is going to put an end to all suffering and those that have inflicted it are going to find themselves on the receiving end of justice. And those that come to Jesus before that are on the receiving end, the redeeming end of justice. See, there's a redemption side to justice, and then there's a receiving side to justice. It's where evil is extinguished on the receiving end. The redeeming end is where hope is restored for victim and victimizer. But that's a hard message to communicate in this culture, isn't it? And so we assimilate. And suddenly our values are the same as our favorite construct, whatever that is, fundamental or progressive. For the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, suppress to push down the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Here's where it gets really, really telling. Verse 21. For although they knew God, who is he speaking to? Believer or unbeliever? This is going to change the way you read this passage. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him, did not live in a way that reflects Him, did not value what He values. Or give thanks to Him. Because after all, we did this. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Why? Because they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. 
God's ultimate indictment is found in verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature themselves rather than the creator. See, we love this passage because we get to isolate a particular group of people's sins and we get to elevate that as being more horrific than ours. But God is saying those who knew God did not honor God and because of that, it led to a downward progression. And then we like to stop in the middle and think that that's the top of the mountain. But we know down in verses 29 through 31, we actually find ourselves there. The pinnacle of it is, is they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness. Do we have covetousness? Do we not look at the $700,000 home across from us and we look at our little squandery $200,000 home and wish that we lived in the $700,000 home? That's coveting. And we like it. And we'll sell our souls for it. This is a result I'm knowing God and not honoring God. And God's saying, I'm giving you over to your desires. I'm going to let you wear yourself out. Malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Assimilation, worshiping ourselves instead of the Creator. The same thing that we accuse our unchurched friends of each and every day. We add to the noise when we assimilate, when we lose the clarity of our message and the direction by which it calls us. And God says, I'll give you over to it. And that's different than giving up on you. Never gives up on you. But you can only hold a stubborn child back so long. All because we want to worship ourselves instead of our Creator. What kicked off this whole rant? In this passage, verses 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is this God created everything to reflect his goodness, his perfect holiness. But man has chosen his own knowledge of good and evil. He rebelled against God, and that rebellion has led him to all kinds of selfishness, which is called acts of sin. That's a very offensive message for a believer and unbeliever. But God created us to know him, to love him, to be a perfect reflection of him. We choose our own lesser versions to worship ourselves, our own image, and our own ideas of God. And that separates us, not just in practice, but it separates us emotionally and spiritually from God. And God, instead of condemning us, enters into that brokenness, becomes subjected to our evil, and takes it on himself. Why? Because he loves us, but ultimately wants to redeem us out of it. He wants to do what we're unwilling to do for ourselves and unable to do for ourselves. 
And then offers us by this incredible offer of faith saying, I will redeem you. I will draw out my image. I will push back the darkness in your life if you will simply follow me. And then you will become part of the message that I have begun. Of spreading that message. Living that message. Calling people into this relationship. You'll become part of restoring hope. You will be going in a completely different direction than everybody else is going. There's no room for assimilation. But it's an incredibly attractive offer for those that are being saved. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So what does repentance look like for us? In a word, incarnation. There are going to be some of my fundamental friends in theology. They're going to call me a hypocrite for this. And I'm going to say, you're wrong. My idea of incarnation isn't to bury myself in culture so that there's no distinction between me and them. My idea is to allow Jesus to incarnate me, to live within me. He came to live and dwell among us. He died to dwell in us through his spirit. I'm saying, Jesus, fill my heart. Incarnation, that's where it begins. God, fill my heart. Reveal every every ugly, dark, impure motive, thought, action, and let's push this out of my life in humility and repentance before others. Not in pretense that I have it together, but a humble pursuit of you, Jesus. I'm laying that transparent before my wife, my children, my church, my community. Because you're greater. You're the hope. Incarnation. Living with the presence of Jesus in the midst of everyone. And if that's heretical, then my fundamental friends have to rewrite an entire Bible. And so do my progressive friends. Because it splits both of those extreme ideologies right down the middle and doesn't give them a leg to stand on. See, look at Romans 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation. It's the idea that God redeems, saves, and transforms people's lives daily. That's the incarnation of God within my heart, your heart. Then notice what it says in verse 17. The righteousness of God, the character of God, the goodness of God is revealed from faith, my faith in him, for faith, for other people to come to faith. but the wrath of God is revealed against wickedness. He goes on to say, we got a choice. So incarnation means letting Jesus inhabit us, dwell in us, and remake us into his image so that we can engage in our faith in ways that others may embrace our faith. If 5280 Church does that, we'll restore hope. If I do that, 5280 Church will restore hope. If you do that, 5280 Church will restore hope. If we don't, we sin against Jesus and culture.
we add to the noise. And we miss life. What will I choose? What will you choose? My prayer is that you'll choose hope.